As we continue through Mark this morning, we will be in Mark 13, starting at verse 32, if you'll follow along with me. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each one with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, Stay awake. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful. We thank you, Lord, that you have communicated to us at various times and in various ways through your prophets and through your son in these last days and by your word held for all time. We pray, Father, as we know that this heaven, this earth will pass away. And you will recreate the heavens and the earth. We pray, Father, you would help us to hold fast to that which will not pass. That will, which will not be made new, but that which remains. Your word, your faithfulness, your holiness over all things. I pray you would help us, Father, to hold those realities not just in our head, but in our heart. That we would be alert to the truth of your word the grace of your Son given for us, that we might glorify your name forever. It's in his name we pray. It's by your spirit we have the power to do so, by your kindness that you've planned all things that we might. It's in, amen. So this morning, as we look at this passage, you see that last command in verse 37, and he makes clear this is for us. He says, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I don't, when I hear those words, stay awake, I think of uh, experiences many times in my life, but just recently on the 4th of July, I don't know if it ever happens to you, but often uh, driving home on the 91 from Orange County, I'm fairly alert. Maybe because I realize the danger of the 91 freeway and the constant construction and always changing. I grew up here. I've lived in Southern California for 41 years my entire life, and I don't remember a time where the 91 was not under construction. Uh, So you have to be alert. But once I hit the 15 freeway, I am only trying to stay awake. I'm only trying to keep my eyes open. I'm so familiar, it's so straight, so easy. And I often find myself driving, Lauren asleep, all the kids asleep, and me being tempted by the sin of those around me (laughs) trying to join in. And those moments when, and maybe this doesn't happen to you and that's good, but those moments when your head starts to nod and you realize All of a sudden, you were falling asleep while driving at 70 miles an hour with all your children and your wife in the car. There is an alertness that comes, especially if you hear that little little braille on the side of the freeway. 
you're alert and awake for a few minutes. And then again. And something has to be done. You have to do something. You have to focus my mind. I have to grab some crackers, have a drink. I I try to make sure I have something to draw me out of that, to give me life, to wake me up. Because though I've been driving for decades, and though I'm comfortable to do so, and though I've made it home many times from Orange County down the 15 and not sure how I got from the 91 to my house, I understand the danger of what's going on. I was in high school, my dad fell asleep on the road, flipped his truck and was in a hospital bed in our living room for six months with broken ribs and all kinds of things. The the reality of the danger and moving at that speed and knowing this is not an activity you do while sleeping, okay? Unless you have a Tesla that drives for you or whatever comes available, but that's not the current state for life. In those moments, the reality, the necessity to stay awake is clear. Pretty much every priority I have at that moment is what do I need to do to stay awake? It's that kind of clarity that Christ is calling us to. It's that kind of clarity that he's declaring his disciples need. It's that reality of life and death for all Christians, as we've talked many times over the last few weeks, as we look at cosmic eschatology, or the last of all things for creation, we also understand our personal eschatology, that there will come a last day for you. That this earth, this life, is a matter of life and death. You will die. And the necessity to be alert to that fact, aware of life and death, is why the Bible says it is better to be in the house of mourning than the house of celebration or the house of feasting. It's it's why the Word of God takes so clearly the reality of death and the requirement that will come upon all men at death, the judgment of God. And here, as Christ has declared, as we looked in verses 5 through 13, the expectations of eschatology, what's the world going to look like? It's going to look like the 91, constant construction in sin, never coming to a conclusion, just trying to fill the desires of man with no final end in sight for man. But we are not to be those who are running around with the thoughts of men and the sins of men, but we are to see that no one leads us astray or to be on guard because there will come those who seek to lead astray. We're not to be alarmed. We're not to be those who are panicked or calling out the alarm because there are wars or rumors of wars or famines because those things will come. Or to be on guard because persecution has come and will come for the church. Not to be anxious, but to know the plans and the purposes of God in that. And then we looked in verses 14 through 31 at the events of eschatology or the cosmic signs of eschatology. What will come that will make all men know? And we saw the declaration of the abomination of desolation that will come as prophesied by Daniel, declared by Paul, and prophesied again in Revelation that there will be one who comes in false promises of peace and he will declare himself to be God. And many will be led astray. They will follow after him. And he will do so by the power of Satan, 
according to signs, in such a way that Mark says, even if were possible, which is not, the elect would fall, fall away. And then after those signs of eschatology, the, the signs of the cosmic coming, this great tribulation described in Mark as worse than any other tribulation known to creation, we're said that we're to be on guard again because we are aware, not alarmed, not anxious, but aware. We have been made aware that following the tribulation, Christ will come in power and glory. And prior to that, the signs of that coming soon are that there will be cataclysmic tribulation on earth such as never been known before. And all of this says that we then are to be on guard. Again, not alarmed by the state of earth, not anxious under persecution, made aware and this morning alert, the alertness of our eschatology, that we are to be those who are alert. He says that uh, in that closing section right before we dealt with last week, he says to be on guard because I have made you aware of all these things beforehand. He says, you know what's coming. You need to be prepared. You need to be on guard or alert or aware of the coming issues. In the same way, in a silly illustration, if I'm leaving Orange County, I know the roads, I know where I'm going, and I need to be alert. I need to be prepared. I need to understand the truth of my goal, and I need to understand what it will take to accomplish that goal and what is going to tempt me on the way home. But as we look at this, what do we know and what do we not know? If we're to be on guard and to be awake, it's helpful for us. What do we know and what do we not know? What should we expect? What should our expectation be? How then are we to be on guard? Remember, being on guard is, is talking about being alert, being awake. It's rooted in that same verb to see to keep your eyes open. And Christ really lays into that illustration here of one who is on guard, alert, watching, waiting, aware. We reviewed briefly uh, what you see in the left column on your handouts. What you know, what, what the Bible has declared to us just looking at Mark, what we know of the end, what we know will, we, will come, and, and we reviewed that in context. And then he says what we don't know. If you look at the beginning of the passage, that's exactly where he starts. He says, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But concerning the day or the hour, we will know the season, but we will not know the second. We won't know the day. We won't know the hour. We, we know the general timing. Not in when it will start. Not in when it will come about. But we know God will return. We know it could begin at any time. We know there could be any point where now the declaration of these things coming are here before us. But he says, the exactness of this 
We don't know. We can assess, as Jesus just reminded us, remember, this doesn't mean you have no idea when the end is coming. You have no idea what's coming about. You have no, you're just kind of waiting glumly in life with no awareness that Christ is going to return and what that's going to look like and when that's going to happen. Because he just said, look at the fig tree. Look at the signs of the fig tree. When the sign goes down, your head will turn, right? You're going to be aware It's going to alert you. Thank you for that illustration. I asked you to plan out there, Mike. That will draw your attention. You will not be able to deny. But he says, the day or the hour, when that's coming, not even the angels know. And here he says, not even the Son of Man. Christ is saying, and and I'm not going to preach on all this, but if you read Philippians... Uh, that Christ and kenosis and that he humbled himself to become a man. He veiled attributes, that he withheld his ability, uh, chose not to participate in things like that knowledge. And it appears, if we read the book of Acts, uh, as Christ comes back and the disciples ask, when will the kingdom come? Christ doesn't say, I don't know. Uh, he says, that timing is for my father to know. And so... I would assume, and many assume, uh, after the resurrection, Christ in his exalted form uh, does know the timing. He's not up up there confused, waiting. Uh, He knows. But as he veiled much to become a man, he did also in his knowledge of that. Just a quick side note. And the angels, not knowing, waiting, we are called then to do what? To know the season, to be aware but to always be alert. Deuteronomy 29.29, as I've reminded you a few times throughout Mark 13, says the secret things belong to God, but that which has been revealed belongs to us and to our children forever, that we might do all the work of His law. The words of His law, rather. And so, as you think about that, he's saying the secret things, what is not known is the exact timing of this. When, when is the end going to come? When is Christ going to return? When is all of this going to happen exactly? We don't know. But much of it has been revealed. What will it look like? How will it come about? What will be the things that we see? Yes, those have been made known. But concerning the hour, the day. And so then Christ moves in stating the command. Verse 33, what must you do? Well, it's clear through the passage. What does he want you to do? He says it again and again and again. Be on guard. Keep awake. And he commands the doorkeeper, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Alert. The command and the reason Verse 33 tells us the command, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. You don't know when this will start. Be on guard, always looking for, intentionally aware and waiting. Not asleep. Just looking to see if anybody's asleep. Because now would be the inappropriate time. Because you have direct command from Christ. Be awake. 
What, what's the illustration here? What, what, why does he say, be awake, be alert, not asleep? Because when you're asleep, you are unprepared for everything. Right? When you are asleep, you are in the weakest and the most vulnerable state of your life. When you're asleep, you want to know you have the kind of friends who are going to allow you to rest, not to draw on your face. Right? Not to mess with you. Because no matter how strong, no matter how careful, no matter how much Metallica you listen to and you think you can sleep with one eye open, you can't. You are asleep. You're vulnerable. And he's saying, you must not be those who are completely unaware in a state of complete lulled rest. You cannot be those who are helpless without awareness, just in a pacified state. You must be awake because he will return. Then he moves to illustration. Look at verse 34. He says, it is like, right? What does that mean? He's making a metaphor. He's saying it is like. He's giving illustration to his statement. It is like a man going on a journey. And when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. It's a simple illustration. He simply assigns the one who is the watchman, the the one who must be awake and aware. And the master tells him what to do. He's his servant. The doorkeeper is to be ready to receive him when he arrives. To be ready at all times. Right? It's a very simple illustration. A doorkeeper would be a guard of the door. He would be the one that would be there to open it for the master. He would be the one that has to be awake and alert. And were he to be found asleep, the modern phrase to him would be, you had one job. One job. Stay awake and wait. And so he gives this simple illustration. And then he emphasizes or intensifies the reason and the command. Look with me at verse 35. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all Stay awake. You've been left here with a purpose, and the master will return. You don't know when. It could be at any time. Don't get caught asleep, pacified, lulled by other pleasures than the commands of your master. Luke records further words of this warning. If you look at Luke 21, 34 through 36 in your handout, he makes clear what, what, what does he mean when a Christian might fall asleep? Does he, does he mean that Christians are to stay awake all the time? That once you get saved, you don't need sleep anymore? No, clearly not. No, we are to sleep. We are to rest. We have account of Christ resting and sleeping. Resting and sleeping is a natural state of man. It's actually a natural state that declares your dependence on man. No matter how powerful and how capable and how able you think you are, 
Try to be so without rest, and you will find that you are nothing. You will drive yourself mad. Rest is necessary. So what does he mean that we must be alert and waiting? Not that we are like the disciples looking at the sky, waiting for his return. No, again, it's made clear to the disciples in Acts. Why are you looking at the sky? He will return in the same way. But you are to be my witnesses in all of creation. They are to go and to make Christ known. And so his command is not that we are to do nothing but wait for Christ. But we are not to be those who are lulled and asleep and passively embracing the pleasures and the sins of earth, assuming Christ won't return. Luke says it this way as he records uh, further words of Christ in Luke 21, 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will become upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Matthew compares it with the days of Noah. He says that they just went on living and eating and drinking until the flood came. And as the flood comes upon them, they have no expectation, no understanding of what's happening. They're lulled in their sin, in their cares, and judgment comes and catches them by surprise. He says, Christian, it is not to be so for us. You are to be expecting this. You are to be alert, awake, be on guard. Luke gives two descriptions of what lulls us in. He says, not to be part of dissipation or the unbridled indulgence of pleasure, most often with drunkenness. To be one who just gives themselves unbridledly to the pleasures of life. And then follows that up with drunkenness, to be completely unaware, not in a state of sleep, but not in a state of soberness, alertness, or readiness. To drown yourself in alcohol or drugs, to be one who is looking to escape the apparent reality before them. And then this last state, and the cares of this life that that day may suddenly come upon you like a trap. He says not to be weighed down with dissipation, not drunkenness. Matthew says not like those who lived in the time of Noah, living for their own lives, their own pleasure, their rebellion against God. But those who are alert, those who are awake, those who have been made aware, those who are not alarmed by the things going on, those who are not anxious, as they await the coming of Christ, those who are on guard. And not those who are given to the cares of this life, considering the wants and the pleasures available to you in life alone, rather than the pleasure of Christ and the commands of Christ for your pleasure in life and His return.
So Christian, you, you might want to say, well, this doesn't apply to me. This is spoken to Jesus' disciples for a certain time and coming events and things that were going on then. Well, however you would try to escape these commands, Christ makes it very clear in verse 37. He says, what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. Be alert. Aware. Not alarmed. Not anxious. But awaiting the return of Christ. Even now, people say such foolish things in life that I'll give in to my sin now and then I'll later find Christ, right? They look at the kindness of Christ and they see the kindness of Christ as weakness or failure because they see that Christ is kind and that they're not immediately condemned or damned and they take part in dissipation and drunkenness and they think, well, what's the big deal? I was trashed last week and God didn't damn me. Why not get trashed this week? I lived in sin before and it didn't go so bad. Why not live in sin again? I'll make things right when the time comes. Uh, Let me have the pleasure of a young man now and I will make things right when I'm an old man. Or maybe more close to home. The temptation of sin comes to your heart. And rather than being alert and aware, knowing who Christ is, knowing His return, knowing what He's accomplished, knowing the reality of sin and death, you convince yourself, He'll forgive me. I can live in this now. It'll be okay. Give in to the lulling of sin. And and how many times, friend, have you found yourself convincing yourself in moments that you can give in to them to this temptation and finding yourself in months unaware of how you ended up where you are. Back in the same old sin patterns, back with the same old sins. You didn't get there immediately. You got there in the moments. You got those in the times where you were not alert. You were not aware. You were giving in to the cares of this life. You were giving in to not dispensation, <laughs> dissipation. You were giving in to drunkenness. You were giving in to anger. You were giving in to lust. You were surrendering to these things. And they were lulling you, telling you these things are okay for now. And later you find yourself in what appears to be a complete stupor. Questioning who God is, unsure what you're doing, why you're here, how could this sin catch you again? Throughout Scripture, we're commanded that we are no longer those who live in darkness. We're those who live in light. And we live in the light that the day and the hour that comes might not catch us like the world. Right? Christ, and we often think Christ will come like a thief in the night. And that is true, but Christian, for you, he's not coming like a thief. He's not trying to sneak up on you. He's not trying to catch you. He's coming to save you, to redeem you. It will not come upon us like it comes on the rest of the world. 1 Thessalonians 5 makes this clear. As Paul is writing to encourage the Thessalonians who are worried and concerned because they think they've missed the return of Christ. 
They think the return of Christ was some previous event, and now they're just living on on earth. Paul reminds them in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 5, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security, and then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Right? That's the description of the world. What will happen? You are aware that Christ is going to return at a time when no one knows. The judgment is going to come when people are unaware. Why? Because they're just living their life. They're living in peace and security. They're saying, surely nothing bad is going to happen. They're seeking all the pleasures of life. They're looking at the world and thinking, of course things must be getting better. Of course we're doing better. We have all the pleasures of life. And he says, and suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a woman, and they will not escape. Suddenly, cataclysmic events that will call the whole world into tribulation, that will declare and will not end. Not the warning pains, as he said previously in Mark, but the labor pains that are coming, the labor pains that will not be escaped, the tribulation. And verse 4, what of us then? But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. To be awake, to be alert, and at work together, encouraging and building one another up in love, in Christ, knowing that He has given us hope for salvation, knowing that we do not await the wrath of God, we await the redemption of Christ. The coming of Christ will not catch you like a thief if your hope is in Christ, because Christ does not come to rob you. He comes to redeem you. Christian, be awake. Be alert. Again, you might tell yourself, I don't see any of the things coming. I don't see any of the times and the signs of the end, Jake. If Israel and all these things have to come about before it, what do I have to worry now? And I remind you of the words of Christ. Should he tarry and the judgment not start tomorrow, which it could, but should he tarry, do not be so foolish to think that your only concern is the cosmic eschatology of the world. You also stand as a man 
a woman who could die now, tomorrow, any day. He is a fool that fears the things of life and does not fear the maker of life. Who fears man who could kill you, but does not fear God who kills both body and soul in hell. Christian, do not just be aware. Do not just love the signs of eschatology. Do not just fight and and come to blows with one another to defend and to describe how you think this is going to come about. Prepare for the end of Christ, not in constant debate over how He will return, but in constant clarity, constant awareness, constantly awake to the reality that He will return. Those are the commands of Mark 13. Those are the commands of 1 Thessalonians 5 that we would be awake. Not in dissipation, not in drunkenness, not in sin, and not in the cares of this life. And it's that phrase that I think causes difficulty for us. Because if you are to be awake and alert that Christ is coming, how does that change your life every day? What does that mean for tomorrow? Does that mean, if you're awake and alert, aware of Christ, that we all quit our jobs, build a compound in Idaho, and go and live there waiting for Christ's return? I will rebuke those of you shaking your head yes later, because that's my job. No, it doesn't. Does it mean that we all sell all of our possessions and go and live on a mission field? That we all abandon what we're doing? That we all divide and conquer by proclaiming the world? Or proclaiming the word throughout the world? Many of us might be called to that. To to choose to not live here at this time in the comforts of life now. And to go and to make the gospel known somewhere else. And if you feel God is calling you to that, I do not want to discourage you from that at all. Do so. But if you don't feel like God is calling you and you feel burdened that you're not a real Christian because you're not living in a window of the world that needs the gospel desperately, and you're not a missionary there, if you feel like, I'm not a real Christian, I'm not a faithful Christian because I'm not a pastor, Because my 24-7 work is not wrapped up in the administration and the function of the church. And you assume that that means that you are overwhelmed by the cares of this life and not the Lord's work. Christian, please don't be confused. I think a helpful place for us to understand what this means to not live in the cares of this life is... The book of Luke, chapter 3, as John the Baptist speaks to people who are asking the same question. What, what do they do? They're coming to John. They're repenting because they see the kingdom of God is at hand. They want to place their hope in God. And so tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? 
And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. What does John do? His tax collectors, those who are hated by all because of their job. And they are hated because often they do their job in sin. They use their job and the power of their job and the authority of their job not to bring glory to God, but to provide for their cares of this world pleasure and power and possession. And so they take advantage of people. And they take more than they are commanded to do. And they pad their incomes through lies and deceit. We're soldiers. Those who have been enlisted to someone else, that they don't belong to themselves. They're owned. They are a weapon of a country or a government. Roman soldiers at the time. The same Roman soldiers that would guard Christ while he's on the cross. And, and what is John's command to them? Flee from what you're doing. Leave Rome. Get out. Start a new life. Run. No. He says, be a soldier. But do not exhort, extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. It says, live for Christ where you are, faithful to Christ. Now, John doesn't say it exactly that way, because remember, John is foreshadowing the coming of the kingdom. He is foreshadowing Christ. But as Christ comes, again, as we look through Scripture, we do not see a command for everyone to leave and become missionaries. We do not see a command for all of us to flee from the earth and create our own little community of safety and comfort for us. What we see is a calling to live here and now in the life which God has given you. Awaiting His return and doing so in the character of Christ. Notice the commands of Scripture all call you to live a different life than the world. But they call you to do that and that you would live in the likeness of Christ. Not to escape the world now. To live in the world to the glory of Christ. So how, how do we wrap our mind around this? How do we live alert and aware in our current function? Well, I was recently encouraged as the men were working through the book of uh, Philemon on Monday mornings and showing up on Monday morning and, and working through that book. And in the introduction, uh, Paul writes and he writes and he states two things in Philemon one and two, because it only has one chapter. Those verses, he says to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And then he says to Archippus, our fellow soldier. And he describes these two men. And as we we're there on Monday morning and we're working through the passage together, and the discussion became, who are these men? What, what does this tell us about Philemon and Archippus? And is it maybe, you know, Philemon's more of like a blue-collar labor guy. That's why it calls him a worker. And, and maybe Archippus is more like he's a soldier. And so that's his command, like he's the enforcer. And we're trying to figure out who they are. And then looking at the text makes it very clear what he means by these things. Because he says, Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. 
Archippus, our fellow soldier. These are prefaces or uh, prefixes to a word. It's ones who soldier together or ones who labor together. And Christian, maybe you think of yourself as a Jesus freak, and I don't want to discourage you from continuing to do so. Maybe you think of yourself as a son or a daughter of the king. Maybe you think of yourself as a citizen of heaven. But do you think of yourself as a fellow worker and a fellow soldier? Because that's the description here in Philemon, and it's a description throughout the Bible. I just put a list of verses there where people are described as fellow workers by Paul. Aquila and Priscilla are fellow workers. Urbanus is a great name if you're thinking what to name a baby boy. Who doesn't want to be Urbanus? Or Archippus for that matter. Timothy is kind of boring. Uh, fellow worker Titus. Clement. Synthike. There's a good one. That's going to get attention. Yodia, Epaphroditus, it's another good one. All of these called fellow workers. Archicus, Mark, Justice, Archicus again, Mark, Demas, who later is not a fellow worker, but you've got to read your Bible for that. Luke, all claimed as fellow workers. Soldier language is also common throughout Scripture. It communicates life and death and loyalty to Christ. Soldiering is suffering in adversity, standing assured. To be a soldier is to be loyal. To be a worker is to labor. Christian, you are to be the loyal laborers of Christ. You are to labor in loyalty. Right? You're a tax collector. How do you collect taxes to the glory of Christ? Be alert to that fact. Don't be caught as a tax collector who has given themselves into the sinful opportunities of life. You're a soldier. How do you soldier to the glory of Christ? Be alert to that fact. Stay awake. Consider your labor and your loyalty. That's the command of Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Right? So a soldier is not in a town questioning how he's going to set up his whole life in this town. How he's going to find a girl and marry her and live with her forever in this town. He is serving as a soldier in that town. Maybe soldiering with a wife and child again, but that's not his forever home. He is listening to the commands of his officer or that who enlisted him for the pleasure of that officer. He's not wrapped up in all the things the people of that town are wrapped up in. Though his day-to-day life might look a lot like theirs. Food, shelter, family, faithful work. But he does so in the character of Christ. I think people often think it would be easier if we all just compounded somewhere by ourselves. 
then we wouldn't have to deal with the world of sin. It would be easier to see our own sin. Because then you wouldn't have your pagan neighbor to blame. You'd have your Christian neighbor. And you'd be like, I thought we moved here to be real Christians. And now you're just mad at everybody that lives around you still. Moving to a new location won't change you. Many people think, oh, if I could just become a missionary and I could live on the field and I could devote everything to Christ. And many young people in desire for adventure and wanting to live some new kind of fun life, they find that when they get to the mission field, they're the same person. Nothing changed in them. Their desires, their wants, their pleasures. And for many, it confirms for them that's where they should be. And for many, it discourages them. Because rather than looking to Christ, they were looking for a new location, a new thing, something new that would satisfy them. Christian, don't be lulled by the lies that surround you. Your location is not the problem. Maybe your labor is directly involved in sinfulness in such a way that you must quit what you're doing. But I would say your labor is not the problem. Your co-workers are not the problem. Those who are around you are not the problem. The problem is sin in both you and the world. And that you forget the battle of sin that wages unseen and you give in to the temptation of sin. You are lulled to sleep rather than alert. I want to point you this week to look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. If you wanted to take a slow walk through that, you could go on to our website and audio. And we spent about seven weeks working through this passage. But in this passage, we are reminded that we are to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of Satan. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. And then you are given an illustration of how to stand firm. Now, this is not... Literal Christian armor. This is not about you putting on a helmet and a breastplate. It's not about preparing for the day of war in such a way that you are dressing yourself in armor. He is using armor and soldier language to declare for you the truths that hold you firm in the battle that is unseen. What are those truths? Well, you are to stand firm in the truth of what God has declared. Stand firm with the belt of truth and truth while the world can hypothesize and argue and come up with new theories and new philosophies, new studies, new statistics. We don't need them. The authority of earth has no power and authority in truth. We stand firm in what God has declared. The righteousness of Christ with the breastplate of righteousness. We stand firm in righteousness knowing that it is not our heart that justifies or condemns us, but Christ's perfect, sinless righteousness. Our righteousness stands in Christ. Our feet shod with the peace 
of the gospel. We stand firm, ready in the peace of the gospel. We are not at war with God. We have peace because of Christ. We are therefore ready for all that is before us, ready to proclaim the truth of the gospel because he reigns over all things and has made us his in the gospel. We stand firm in the gift of faith. We stand firm believing, depending, completely trusting that he is faithful in all things, that Christ is ours. And if God is for us, nothing can stand against us, that we rejoice even in our trials because he reigns over all things. We stand firm in salvation, or as described the helmet of salvation. Salvation gives us confidence. We are freed from the power of sin. We have been freed from the penalty of sin. And one day, we will be freed from the presence of sin. And lastly, the Word of God. We stand firm in the truth which He has declared, He has recorded. It is breathed out, the work of the Spirit, preserved by Him. It is inerrant and infallible. It is the wisdom and knowledge that declares and matures the man of God. Christian, in your labor and your loyalty to Christ, temptation will come. You will be asked to be a shady electrician. You will be tempted to give your mouth to sin. You will be tempted to give your body to sin. You will be called as a doctor or a construction worker or a factory worker or a delivery man or a pipe fitter or a file sky or a salesman or a manager, a waitress or a server. And you will be tempted with the lies of those who do all of that around you that there's an escape that's not Christ. There's a salvation that's not Christ. There's a freedom that's not Christ. There's a joy that's not Christ. And that battle will go on scene. It will be through words, through those who are tempted and lulled by Satan and his lies. But you've been fully armed. You've been made aware. You should not be alarmed when temptation comes. You should not be anxious of what you will say when they persecute you as a result. Because you knew, you know, and he has told you. And Christian, I don't say that to condemn you. I say it to remind you. Christ does not say be on guard. Because you're already on guard and you know you must be. He says, be on guard because you will quickly forget. It is a warning of love like the warning of Hebrews to lay aside every weight and encumbrance to run for Christ. And it is not a warning that we take alone. So you being a fellow worker and a fellow laborer, a fellow soldier, fellow loyal to Christ, you've been called together. These commands in Ephesians, the commands in 1 Thessalonians, are calling to stand strong because you are not alone in the dark and you have not been called alone to the light. 
That's why Ephesians ends with verse 18 in speaking of our spiritual warfare or the reality of the war against us, sin and Satan and the world which lulls us into sleep rather than alert in what Christ has accomplished. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit and all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. To that end, in prayer and supplication for one another, alert with perseverance, making supplication for the saints. We do this together in love for Christ, intentional for one another because of Christ. We are fellow laborers, fellow soldiers, fellowship together in Christ to pray for one another. Pray to one another for that end. If one thing our society is declaring now, it is, it's about you. You need to be concerned about you. What about your friends? What about your mental health? What about your work? What about your time? What about your needs? What about your family? What about your pleasure? What about your plow- power? What about your possessions? Christian, be alert. Be aware. It is not about you. It is about Him. And He has loved you in such a way that He has not left you alone to know that. He has not left you alone to consider that. He has not left you alone to not be alarmed by what's going on in the world. He has not left you alone to deal with the anxieties that life brings. He has not left you alone to come to your own awareness of how everything works. He has not left you alone to be alert. He has called you together to make supplication for one another, to have your thoughts on one another, to pray for one another, knowing that when you feel tired, somebody else does too. When you're falling asleep, you know what you should do? Pick up the phone and call somebody. Hey, I just need somebody to keep me awake. I feel like I'm falling asleep on the road. Works practically on the 15 freeway. And it is practically God's provision and care for you that you are not called to be alert alone. You're called to be alert in Christ as fellow workers, fellow soldiers, faithful in all he has called you to now, awaiting his return. Let's pray that he would give us such endurance. Let's pray for one another that we would most often think of the needfulness of each other and the glory of Christ.